blame shifting. If you look up the word, that word in the dictionary, you'll find several different nouns and verbs and adjectives. But if you look down the list far enough, you will find this as a, a definition. An object formally used in poker to mark the next player's deal. A token used to mark, serve as a mark or reminder. So where did that come from? Well, I grew up in a culture where uh, card games were not allowed. Playing cards, except Uno. Yeah, Uno was always safe. But cards were kind of of the devil. Well, that's because back in in the, the 19th century, poker started having this rise to prominence, you know. And if you think about poker... It often involves gamblings and sometimes even high-stake gambling, which is why my parents said, there's no poker in this house. And so the players were often, because of the high stakes, they were often suspicious of somebody who was cheating. And so you've seen the Westerns, right? What often happens at that saloon? A shootout happens, right? Because there's some dirty dealing. There's some kind of... Some kind of things were going on. Suspicious takes place and suspicion takes place. And all of a sudden it comes out, yeah, somebody did it. So to discourage any kind of dirty dealing, the players rotated the responsibility around the table. The person to the left deals next and so forth and so on. And so to keep track of who is next in line, that person was given a marker. A marker. And often in the 19th century kind of West, the marker was a knife. And what was that knife handled made out of? A buck's horn. And so during that time, the, that's how you would pass the buck. The dealer's turn was, when the dealer's turn was done, what would he do? He would, boom, pass the buck, the responsibility onto someone else. And if somebody did, did not want that responsibility, what would they do? They would pass the buck on to the next person. And so that's, that's kind of your little bonus etymology for the day. It's like, oh, okay, that's really great. In other words, your responsibility, your job, or your fault would be passed on to someone else. There was a lot going on in this, this 8th century BC in Israel when this little known uh, prophet from the country of Judah came up to Israel to, to begin prophesying against all the sins of their big brother Israel. A lot of people heard his sermons and, and they passed by with little thought saying that he wasn't prophesying against us. No, he was talking about someone else. In Amos, in Amos there, was a, there seems like there is a lot of preaching against the wealthy and their, their abuses against the poor. For many, they, they were probably assuming it's somebody else. You know, the, they, the, the rich trampled on the heads of the poor. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are in the mountains of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the knee. You know, that's somebody else, right? Or what about this? Therefore, because you, the rich, trample on the poor, you exact taxes of grain. You turn aside the needy in the gate for the, where the justice is to be taken place. They pass the blame. Hear this, you who trample on the needy, who bring 
uh, bring the poor of your land to an end, buying the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals? So, in fact, if, if you do hear the preaching of the book of Amos, there is a very good chance that it will be on this theme. If you hear from other pastors, it's about the oppression of the poor, the mistreatment of the poor by the privileged class, the well-to-do, the, the, the need for the church to look after them or care for those who are having a hard time doing it. So there's no question that the church is called to minister to the poor, those who are not receiving justice. We are called time and time and time and time again throughout Scripture to minister to the poor, to minister to the needy. It's a hallmark of Scripture. It is all over the place. But the book of Amos is not a social gospel. It's not about, primarily about the church's responsibility to the poor. Nor is it a book that espouses any kind of redistribution of wealth. Nor does it serve as a proof text against capitalism. Nor is it about some kind of need for the church to give up everything else just to get into the community to care for the poor. Those who say that are just passing the buck. God did take great offense to the mistreatment of the poor. But as we will see in this message, the poor were also objects of God's coming wrath. God's judgment came and the the wealthy were killed and they were enslaved by Assyria. But Assyria also came for the poor, too. And we, some 2,700 years later, know that this book continues to have much to say to our church today. It has something to say to you and to me. It is found in the 66 inspired, inerrant books of the Bible for your good. And so, don't mistake what Amos is saying as for someone else. Do not pass the buck. Listen carefully as we read Amos 6 together. Please stand for the reading of God's holy word. Listen to this first verse especially, friends. Woe to those who are at ease in Zion and to those who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria, to the notable men of the first of the nations to whom the house of Israel comes. Pass over to Kalna and see, and, and from there go to Hamath the Great and then go down to Gath of the Philistines. Are you better than these kingdoms or is your territory greater than your territory? <clears throat> oh, you who put away the day of disaster and bring near the seat of violence. Woe to those who lie on the beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall who sing the idle songs 
to the sound of the harp and like David invent for themselves instruments for music who drink wine from bowls and anoint themselves with the finest of oils but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. Therefore they shall now be the first of those who go into exile and the revelry 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 of those who stretch themselves out shall pass away. The Lord has sworn by himself, declares the Lord, the God of hosts, I abhor the pride of Jacob and hate his strongholds and will deliver up the city and all that is in it. And if ten men remain in one house, they shall die. And when one's relative, the one who anoints him for burial, shall take him up to bring the bones out of the house and shall say to him who is in the innermost part of the house, is there still anyone with you? He shall say no. And he shall say silence. We shall not mention the name of the Lord. For behold, the the Lord commands and the great house shall be shall be struck down to fragments and the little houses into bits. Do house horses run on rocks? Do the, does one plow over there with oxen? But you have turned justice into poison and the fruit of righteousness into wormwood. You who declare Lodabar, who say, rejoice in Lodabar, who say, have we not by our own strength captured Canarium for ourselves, for behold, I will raise up against you a nation. O house of Israel, declares the Lord, the God of hosts. And they who oppress you from Lebo Hamath to the brook of Arba. This is the word of the Lord. Are you ready? You may be seated. So Amos' preaching continues against Israel. It's like, it's like a battery ram, isn't it? You kind of feel this. We're, we're week six. And the battering ram continues to keep going against Israel. And, and, and in it, he, he really doesn't say anything new here in, in chapter six that he hasn't already said. Israel is self-satisfied. They are comfortable. She is safe. She is wealthy. She's even kind of religious. And regarding her religion, instead of going to Jerusalem, she is, she is going, she has set up all these shrines to keep their nation within their boundaries. And this, this happened right away, right after the nation split from the, the north, the Israel, and Judah in the south. Listen to the northern king, king's uh, first statement. His name was Jeroboam, and he said this to himself in 1 Kings 12. And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David. And if this people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn to their Lord, to Rehoboam, the king of Judah. And they will kill me and return to Jeroboam, the king of Judah. So do you hear, he's got like this conspiracy thing going on. I, I've got to do something or all the power that I have is going to be going to back to Rehoboam, back to 
the kingdom of Judah. So what does Jeroboam do? He, he does this. So the king took counsel and made two calves of gold. And he said to the people, you have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold, your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And he set one in Bethel, and the other one he put in Dan. <coughs> then this thing became a sin, for the people went as far as Dan to be before the one. But that wasn't all that Jeroboam did. He also made a temple in the high places throughout the countryside, and he appointed priests from all among the people who were not Levites, as God had instructed. And Jeroboam even made a feast on the, on the 15th day of the 8th month, like there was a feast that was set up in, in Judah. He offered, he offered sacrifices on that altar. And so he, he did this in Bethel, and he, he was sacrificing to these calves that he had made, these golden calves, and he placed in Bethel these priests in the high places that he had made. So by the time that Amos had arrived to, to Judah with this, this message, it was 200 years down the road. But what an odd what was odd and kind of tragic about it was despite the presence of these golden calves was the fact that these people sincerely believed that they were worshiping God. They, they thought they've been suckered into believing. Everything we're doing is we're, we're worshiping God. This was just like when Moses was receiving the law on Mount Sinai. Do you remember what happens? He, he comes down with the, the, the plates, the Ten Commandments. And he comes down and what does he hear and he see? He sees the people worshiping this calf made out of gold. And Aaron crafted it to the people. And Aaron tells these people, listen, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. To, to the Lord? Are you serious? These are golden calves. How can this be called worship to the Lord? There was a lot that was going on in the time of Amos. There was lots of worship going on. But the question is, to whom? It is why God said back in, in chapter 6, listen, I hate, no, I, I despise your feast. And I, I take no delight whatsoever in your solemn assemblies. In other words, your church services disgust me. They disgust me. It would be better that you would never even do them. Just stop it. But you see, as verse 1 of our text for today says, there was an overall complacency, a false sense of security regarding their relationship with God. God kept on speaking through this mess, but nobody was listening. If God is speaking, we can almost hear Israel think and say, he must be mad and talking about somebody else. They passed the buck. Verse 4 through 6 indicates, 
indicates this as well. They, they, they lie on their ivory beds. They, they lie on their expensive couches. They, they, they are luxurious. They are strumming their harps. On top of that, they're anointing their bodies with some really expensive stuff from the mall to really smell good and feel good. Their skin is smooth and silky. What a picture of their, their spiritual stupor, right? They, they had a self-absorbed way of life. And it will be the wealthy who prospered the most in their rebellion against God, who will be the first to suffer the, the wrath of the, the coming Assyrians. But despite, despite Israel's confidence in her strength, her fortresses and her cities will be delivered over to the enemy, says God in verses 9 through 10. Really? where he really describes a troubling scene. It appears to describe a picture that a few remaining Jews will be holed up in a home hiding. They found a, a dark place where nobody found them. Then the Assyrian army leaves a mark. It just devastates the city. This family hides from Assyria. But they also seem to be hiding from God, right? Maybe they finally got it. This was God's judgment against their unfaithfulness. So they cower in a corner, hoping that they will not be seen from Assyria or they will not be seen by God. And and they say, hush, shh, we must not mention God's name. We must not mention his name because maybe, maybe by mentioning his name, he will see that we are still here. They fear that he may hear them and come for them next. But friends, there is no hiding from God. He knows the things that you do in your exterior life. But he also knows the hidden thoughts and intentions of every man, woman, and child. Things that you may never show anybody else. God knows them. Listen to verse 11. For behold, the Lord commands, and the great house shall be struck down into fragments, and the little house will be, will be broken down into bits. God's judgment does not come, was not just socioeconomically driven. It is against the rich and the poor. Judgment was, was not for having money or for not having money. It was, God's judgment is ultimately against unfaithfulness. Israel had, was finding herself trusting in these military conquests, in her safety and security. But God is clear. He will, quote, rise up against you, a nation, who will oppress you. From this place to this place. And, and so ends chapter, chapter 6 with the people of Israel. They are still absolutely oblivious. They're oblivious despite God's crystal clear call. One commentator put it this way. These people were sincere. Does it describe any of us? These people were sincere, as sincere people measure sincerity. They practiced their religion seriously, but the religious life was a sincere belief in a little g God of their own devising. 
Sincerity had replaced theology. And ceremony had replaced ethics. Their religion did not rise, arise from who God actually is and what is required of man. So if, if Amos was speaking for God, many in Israel would say, surely he is not speaking to me. But he was. But not everybody in Israel was, was lost. Not everyone was, was living life with no glance to God. Amos had spoken of a remnant back in chapter 3. It wasn't a lot. The remnant was described, if you remember, kind of a, a two legs and, and a ragged ear. That, it's just a little piece. Uh, but most of Israel lived lives that were an offense to God. The wealthy led the way. Do you realize that we in this world, Americans, are wealthy? Some of you are going, I can't hardly pay my bills. Do you realize you have not gone without a meal? Do you realize today you have more food on your table than most family have in months? It's often that way, though, isn't it? The wealthy lead the way. The wealthy in Israel were benefiting the most from the unfair and the selfish legal and business practices that were established in the land. Assyria would would come for them first. From a military standpoint, it makes sense, right? The first thing that you do in a military conquest is strike the head. You go where the strength is the most. But the rich, they were also the target of God's wrath as their house was, was demolished into pieces, but so also was the poor house demolished into pieces. Why? Because judgment upon Israel was not driven by economics. And the same is true today. God's judgment is not based upon your wealth or lack of wealth. God's judgment is based on something far more deep. It was driven by the failure to rightly worship and rightly live according to God's covenant that he made with them. Obey me. Obey me and you will be blessed. God had said many times over and Israel was about to be cursed. Perhaps the the rich, rich kind of paved the way in creating an ungodly culture. They were, they were sending, uh, they, they were kind of shaping things. And maybe they, they gave a particular character to the sin of Israel as a whole. But the poor were not exonerated from this at all. God held them responsible as well. The poorest way of life may be absolutely miserable. And none of us really understand poverty. They were exploited. They were taken advantage of. But after God's judgment, it would be worse. They would either be killed or enslaved. And then after that, to stand as victims pleading their case before a holy God. 
You can call the poor victims, my friends, if you want. But in the end, they were judged alongside the rich. And there's similarities for us today, isn't it? For instance, Hollywood makes movies that we abhor. Uh, even many of the musical art, artists out there put out absolutely trashing and embarrassing kind of lyrics that dehumanize women and just encourage sexual license. The kind that no parent would want their child to ever, ever, ever emulate. And there, there's a clear agenda in many of our, our universities today that are really, truly anti-God. And it, it's easy, therefore, to kind of point out to those places and say, listen, God is going to be angry with those people. It's safe to say that he is, but... We are not really still listening to Amos and the message if there is no introspection by us. Not everybody had an ivory bed to lay on in Israel. Not everybody dined on a leg of lamb. Probably most in Israel in this time went to bed on a rug. And on top of that, every night they would eat bread and fish. Bread and fish. Bread and fish. Bread and fish. It's easy to decry, for us to decry the, the sins and the pain that is brought about by the Islamic radicals, right? It's easy for us to get angry at the, the abortion clinic workers, or what about the pornographers, or the child abusers, or the politicians? It's easy to say God is going to get them someday. They will get it. But my friends, our, our holy God is calling out to us as well. It's not just a message for those people. It's a message for us. He is saying, return to me. Return to me. Seek me and live. We too are like the poor in Amos' day. We too have acquiesce to the culture that is surrounding them, that has been created by the privileged. After all, we go to movies, don't we? After all, we listen to their music. After all, we send our kids to these universities. And hear me right now, I am not calling for an Amish kind of community, for us to throw out the TVs, to throw out this, to throw out that, and to live without any kind of electricity or any touch with the outside world. That is not what it is. But we have got to have this kind of eye-opening experience that the outside world and even our inside world is affecting us because we are not seeking God. The problem is, friends, that we just naturally, naturally float downstream with culture. <laughs> really without much thought. And pretty soon we, we, we are downriver so far that ultimately we are at the edge of the waterfall. Israel, if you look at verse, uh, verse 1, I said... Woe to those who are, what? What does it say? At ease. at ease. Woe to those who are at ease in Zion. Israel was complacent or asleep is what it really means. Woe to those who are asleep in Zion. We, my friends, are we asleep in the church? 
Are we complacent in the church? Are we complacent in the Lincoln Way area where God has intentionally planted us right now? Listen, this, this is not a political activist kind of sermon where I'm encouraging you to throw out your televisions into the street, to, to live like the Amish, to be disconnected from the world. What it is, however, is a charge for each of you to ask yourself hard, hard questions of life. You know, the questions that we often think are for other people and not for ourselves. Listen to these questions. I really, I'm going to pause and I want you to think about it. Here's a question. Is our life really about the Lord? Is our worship really about the Lord? How often... I just go through the motions. Or maybe you're thinking, maybe you find yourself, did I just do church on Sunday so that I can treat the rest of my week as mine? Did I show up to church from, from 9.30 to 11 and I checked the box so that I can have the rest of the day for Me? Do I take advantage of others? Especially those who are, are needy. And I'm not talking about, you know, the off-ramps of going into the city, the guy who's holding the cardboard sign, feed me. Do we care for the needy? The emotionally, physically, spiritually, relationally needy in our midst? How much, this one bothers me, so much that I gave my credit cards to my wife. How much of my life is about extravagance and the pursuit of unnecessary things? How much of my energy is devoted to maximizing my comfort and minimizing my pain? Do I, do I run away from difficult and messy issues of life to only serve him and not go to those places to serve him in the hard places? Do, do I try to avoid that so that I can enjoy this? It, friends, it, it's easy to pass the buck, to pass on the clear responsibility that God has given to each and every one of us who are, call ourselves believers. It's easy even to become a Christian. God does everything. He saves us. He, he draws us to saving faith. We believe. And Jesus, here, listen to this. Jesus takes the wrath that we deserve and gives us his righteousness instead. How easy is that? It's not easy to live as one, though, is it? Our fallen nature still wants to be Lord of our own life. This world is sensual and it is enticing and the devil roars around like a lion waiting to jump on, pounce, and devour somebody who is not ready. It is hard for you and me to, to deal with these hard questions that I've posed. We walk around just like Israel did, assuming that all is good with us when it comes to our relationship with God. But my friends, is it? Is it really good with God? It might not be. Take 
your faith, your 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year kind of faith serious. Listen to what one pastor, a PCA pastor out in Washington said about this. Amos is describing a heart we find altogether too much of within ourselves. Amos's description hits the mark all too close to the center. That we have confessed our sins to God and have sought forgiveness through Christ. This is preaching to set us again seeking hard after a different kind of life. A life of faithfulness to God's covenant and obedience to his law. It, it's, it is much too easy to come here each and every Sunday and to assume that the preaching is for somebody else. It's easy. You know, the, I hope so-and-so hears this message. I really hope, because they probably need this one. I've done it. I've even crafted sermons. Man, I, I heard hope Joe Smith hears this one because I'm thinking about him as I'm writing it. What? It's for me. It's for you. What that ultimately is, is passing the buck, and it's ultimately just foolishness. And each of us must assume that each and every Sunday that we are in, listen to this, you are in God's crosshairs. Everyone, from the youngest who is in here to the oldest, and I don't care how long you've been in the faith, you are in God. We must assume that we are in God's crosshairs each and every Sunday. Listen, even Jesus' disciples who walked with Jesus, the Son of God, they walked with him for three years. Some of them probably knew him from their boyhood years. But listen to them. They, they weren't exempt from this. In the upper room, the, the night that Jesus was, was betrayed and taken to the cross, he told his disciples that one of them would betray him. Do you remember how they responded? How they responded concerning this news? They were saddened according to Mark 14. They were saddened. And one by one, they said to him, surely not I. Not me. I've wrestled with that question for a while this week. I don't think it was a good response. It's inspired and it's there for our good. How about if this had been their response or our response. Lord, I know that I am capable of a, this horrendous thing. Forgive me that I must admit that to you. I pray that you will give me the grace and the faith and the strength that I would never betray you. Because I know my heart. I don't know if you know your heart well. But I would have betrayed him. <coughs> I'm pretty sure that everybody here would have betrayed him as well. Lord, give me the strength. My friends, are you at ease in Zion? Are you at ease in this church? Has, has complacency slipped into your life? An aviation magazine kind of nailed it for me. Of all places. 
talking about complacency, it invades areas once occupied by our passion, our interest, our desire, and our focus. When complacent, the, the valued things that have captivated our thoughts, our hearts, and energies tend to fade from priority and can even become mundane or boring or the routine things of everyday life. Burnout in our work life, loss of fire in our relationships, and the lack of zeal for things we once held important are common experience. The shame is not complacency, but the failure to recognize it and take corrective measures to regain our footing once again. My friends, when confronted by the word of God, what will you do? When you check out at 11 o'clock, what are you going to do with the word of God? Are you going to go to your potluck? Are you going to go see your friends and your family? A football game? Turn on the TV? Are you going to start planning for next week? What are you going to do? What are you going to do with the word of God? It is easy, my friends, to pass the buck. It's easy to do that. It's not about me. This isn't about me right now. My friends, it is. You would be better spiritually served if you responded like, like Truman, President Truman. He said the buck stops where? Here. The buck stops here. Meaning this, and you can throw up this slide, Carol. <coughs> I will listen to what the Spirit of God is saying this day to me through Scripture. I will ask the hard questions of life and faith any serious follower of Jesus must ask himself or herself any time the Word of God is before me. I will listen. I will ask What are you willing to do to no longer be at ease or to be complacent or to just go through the motions of your faith? My friends, Nathan and I had this discussion uh, two weeks ago, and I said to him, and I've said this a number of different times through our conversation, I just can't do church. I can't. I just can't go through the motions anymore. What are we willing to do? What am I willing to do to no longer just do this? I think Luke 9 has some relevance. And he said to all of them, if anyone would come after me, let him do what? Deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever is willing to, to lose his life, whoever would save his life will lose it. Do you see the craziness? When I'm willing to say, I'm done with me. I'm done with my agenda. I'm, I'm done with this. Lord, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Take my moments and my days. Let them flow with ceaseless, unending praise. Lord, I want that. That is when we begin to live life. 
So friends, let us overcome complacency by actually adopting and putting into place disciplines that allow God to speak to your ears and to your heart. Listen, you don't come to church as a chore or as the magic answer to anything, but rather the discipline of the church, the discipline of prayer, the discipline of reading the Bible are all vehicles by which God speaks to you. They, he uses those to get into our, the rocky crags of our heart and our minds. He uses those to show his love, his unending, abounding love to you. Brothers and sisters, we are going to be coming to the, the Lord's Supper. And here it is that I, I want you to feel like you are in the crosshairs of God's word. We need to come here with hearts that are ready to confess. That are laid bare. We need to come agreeing with God in our hearts and our minds that we have grown complacent. We, have, we are like Israel. We are Israel. We are at, at ease in Zion. We have to agree that God is right and that we are wrong. But we can't stay there, can we? We need to linger there and confess our sins. But then we need to come with true faith. We, we need to trust God in his word. And not our own righteousness and our own activities. We need to trust in true faith. That as far as the east is from, the east is from the west... So far has he removed our transgressions from us. But he doesn't just come to wash away our sins. He has come to empower us to live life and life to its fullest. That's what he's come to do. So those who are welcome to this table are according to the Heidelberg Catechism question and answer 81. Those who are displeased with themselves because of their sins. You're welcome there. But who nevertheless trust that their sins are pardoned. John Calvin wrote this, and you can throw this one up, Carol. He wrote this concerning the Lord's Supper. Now Christ is the only food for our soul. And therefore, our Heavenly Father invites us to Christ. Refreshed by partaking in him, we may repeatedly gather strength until we have reached heavenly immortality. As we come to this table, we come in true faith, anticipating in true faith that Christ, by his spirit, will convict us of our sin and will nourish us by his life, his death, and his resurrection, which is ours in Christ Jesus.